You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Gail Collins writes an op-ed column for the New York Times. Gail Collins is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and she is terrific and if you're not reading her, you should start. She had one this weekend on Saturday in Saturday's paper titled, And Now Political Virgins. There's so much stupid that Gail unpacks in this column. I really can't cover it all. It starts in Texas where a state legislator is forcing the state to move $3 million that had been set aside for HIV prevention and treating other sexually transmitted diseases, taking that money from those effective programs and wasting it on abstinence-only sex education. Despite the fact that abstinence-only sex education doesn't work, despite the fact that Texas already spends millions of dollars on abstinence-only sex ed uh, and California, which spends nothing on abstinence-only, has an STI infection rate, an HIV infection rate, half as large as Texas's. So Texas is going to keep doing what it's doing even though it's not working. That's the stupid that she starts with. But she unpacks so much stupid in this column and she brings up something that uh, puts into perspective a number I tossed out here on the Lovecast a couple of weeks ago. I said there were 100 anti-gay uh, laws, anti-queer laws, anti-trans bathroom laws moving through various Republican-dominated state legislatures all across the country. And in this really brilliant column where Gal pivots from stupid to stupid to stupid to make an important point, uh, she gets to these anti-gay laws and the fact that Indiana and Arkansas had to backtrack uh, and move away from and amend their anti-gay laws in the face of so much opposition and outcry, particularly from corporations. And Gal writes, by summer, most observers expect the Supreme Court to declare that gay Americans have a constitutional right to get married and then the battle will pretty much be won. But heterosexual women are being pushed further and further back. The good old Guttmacher Institute recently reported that during the first three months of the year, nearly 800 proposals relating to sexual and reproductive health and rights were introduced in state legislatures. And they weren't 800 proposals supporting reasonable, rational policies around sexual health, reproductive freedom, access to contraception. They were all of them anti-choice, anti-access to contraception attacks on women's health. And there hasn't been an outcry about this from corporate America. And Gal would like to know why. And I would like to know why too. This fucking shit pisses me off. You hear me talk about reproductive freedom and reproductive rights and women's rights and access to birth control and contraception and abortion on this show constantly. I care about this stuff. And you should care about it too. And these corporations – that are stepping up in the fight for LGBT civil equality, who are speaking up, speaking out against what's being done in Indiana, they will often say it's because they have lesbian, gay, bi and trans employees and customers. But apparently they have no female employees or customers. Oddly, strangely, we know that they do, but they're not speaking up on their behalf. And Gail points out in her column that this is because you know living openly is who you are, uh, sexually, marriage, having a family. These are all public things where most of the ways in which women being attacked are things that people kind of want to keep private, whether or not they've had an abortion, whether they're using birth control or not, whether they're sexually active and with whom. And so that sort of private sphere nature of most of the attacks on women's freedom, women's rights is fueling this silence about it because what they're shutting down are the choices women make 
in private. Choices that benefit the men in their lives too. As I also like to point out, lesbians aren't using birth control to prevent unwanted pregnancies. Some lesbians do use birth control for other reasons. People sometimes use birth control to take the edge off their periods for other reasons. There are other medical reasons that women use birth control besides contraception. But guys, there's an upside to access to contraception for you too, which is not having children that you don't want yet or can't care for and don't want to pay child support for for the next 18 fucking years. So I was thinking about Gail's column on the way to work today and then thinking about what just happened in Maine, uh, where Maine's Christian Civic League – which is an anti-gay, anti-woman, anti-alcohol consumption. It was a big mover and shaker apparently in the movement for prohibition 70, 80 years ago. They just declared victory over Maine Family Planning, which is a health group in Maine that provides STI screening, contraception, uh, well, you know, health checkups for women and abortion care services for women. Uh, and they declared victory over Maine Family Planning. Maine's Christian Civic League because Maine Family Planning had this annual fundraiser sponsor a protester fundraiser because the Christian Civic League did this thing during Lent where they just besieged Maine Family Planning's clinic with protesters screaming in the faces of the employees, people coming in and out, not all of them for abortion care services, screaming in their faces, waving signs in their faces. And Maine Family Planning had a sponsor the protester fundraiser and this year it raised half as much money as last year and Maine's Christian Civic League said that that was because they prayed. They prayed and so fewer women in Maine because the loving God heard their prayers. Fewer women in Maine are going to be able to get the HPV vaccine, be able to get pap smears, be able to get uh, access to contraception and be able to get sometimes in many cases life-saving abortions. Because Jesus. Mike Tipping, a columnist for the Bangor Daily News, wrote about this. Uh, a bunch of people on Twitter sent me the post. Uh, and Mike said to his readers, I've made a donation. Let's close the gap. This year, Maine Family Planning only raised $5,300 during their campaign. The previous year, they raised $10,000. Let's close that $5,000 gap, Mike Tipping wrote. And I just want a second Mike Tipping here. Let's not let them win. Let's do something concrete. Go to mainfamilyplanning.org, click on donate, and throw a little money at this hardworking, struggling to raise funds family planning clinic in Maine. And flip off the prayer warriors at the Christian Civic League who think they speak for Jesus and God. Let's not let the Christian Civic League win this one. Main family planning had a hard time raising money this year. Let's close that gap. We can raise $5,000 probably in an instant. We have a guest today on the show coming up from Planned Parenthood. And as I say during that call, I'm going to say it here at the top of the show too. It doesn't matter if you can only make a very small donation to an organization like Maine Family Planning or like Planned Parenthood. These organizations don't just point to the amounts of money that they're raising or the size of any one donation that they got. They also point to the numbers of donors, the, the numbers of supporters they have in the community, in their communities and all across the country. So even if you can only afford to throw five bucks at Maine Family Planning, please do. It will have an impact. Okay, coming up on today's show, we have a guest from Planned Parenthood to talk about sexual health and answer some of your questions. In the Magnum, we have Parker Marie Malloy, who's here to talk about coming out to your family, how to handle your family when you're dating someone trans. Lots of your questions all on today's show. 
Dear Dan, I'm a 31-year-old gay male currently living with my partner in a nine-year monogamous relationship. My partner is seven years my senior. He has a steady job that brings in triple digits a year and a retirement that could buy a house is very large. He travels a lot for work, staying at high-end hotels in major cities where he's easily pampered. When he's home and engaged in our relationship, things are GGG. We'll spend time together camping, skiing, boating, or we'll use his travel points to stay the weekend out of town. We make wonderful memories together. Our relationship was stellar up to the point when I lost my job at the end of 2010. I collected unemployment for two years while I looked for comparable work that simply didn't exist at the time due to the recession. While I was unemployed, I blew through my meager retirement and savings trying to keep up with our lifestyle. My partner threatened to leave me if I didn't find work before I ran out of money. My unemployment checks went to pay my part of the rent and utilities, and I worked my ass off by cooking, cleaning, ironing his work shirts, and managing the house by myself as if it were a fancy hotel. In one hand, I was making up for the monetary loss, and in the other hand, I was allowing him to belittle me. Even his family commented on occasion that he was being too harsh, but I worked through it because I wanted our relationship to work. The market turned around, and I found work in 2013 through a temporary contract. I went back to school to get a horticulture degree, and my dog and I now volunteer in the community, so I'm very active. I recently accepted a full-time position with benefits for 30000 a year, but nowhere close to what I was making before. So, Dan, it's been five years since I've lost my job, and I've been steadily employed for the last two and a half. Now that I'm back to work, I expected my responsibilities in the relationship to go back to normal, and they haven't. Well, aside from the fact that we dry clean his clothes now, I'm left to believe that this is the new norm. So my question to you, Dan, is this. Did my relationship end when I lost my job? Do I have a chance of making it work? And if so, what are my first steps? How do people find balance in relationships where one person is older or makes more money? Dump the motherfucker already. If I had a time machine, I would get in my time machine and rush back to you five years ago and tell you the same goddamn thing. You've been with this asshole for nine fucking years. There was a worldwide economic crisis, a recession. You weren't the only one out of work for a very long period of time. You're not the only person who's returned to the workforce uh, at the tail end of this recession taking a job that pays less than the job you lost during the great economic crisis of 2008, 2009. And certainly back, you've been with this fucker for nine goddamn years. You are common law spouses, if not legally married. And there's a point at which in a long-term committed relationship, you're in this motherfucking shit called life together. And you pool your fucking resources. And you're there for each other. And it was perfectly reasonable of you to pick up the slack around taking care of the house while you were unemployed and you had shit to do. It was perfectly unreasonable of him to expect you to run through your life savings and your retirement account attempting to quote-unquote keep up with your lifestyle – During unemployment, you at this stage of your relationship should be pooling your resources. His income is your income. Your income is his income. You were not a deadbeat. You were looking for work. You were keeping in the game. And what do you get in return? You get bullshit, guilt trips, harassment from him and his horrible family. We know why he's horrible. Look at who he came from and the way they treated you. Motherfucker, you have Stockholm Syndrome. 
You need to get the fuck out. Even at 30K a year, take your dog and go. Better to live in a studio apartment somewhere or an apartment, poor as a church mouse, than to live with this asshole for the rest of your life with the sort of Damocles hanging over your head. What if you lose your job again? What if there's a worldwide economic recession? What if he loses his fucking job? What's he going to expect then from you? It just doesn't sound like, despite the, the amount of time you two have been together, that this is a true partnership. That his affection for you is conditional, conditioned upon your being able to match him dollar for dollar income-wise. That doesn't sound like love and commitment. That sounds like roommates. Roommates who do your laundry and suck your cock. Right? That's the kind of roommate you want to be? You want to be someone's husband? You want to be someone's partner? You're going to need to go find some other guy to partner up with Mary. A better guy. Better guy than this guy. That's my advice for you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old, newly identified pansexual female. And my question has to do with my current relationship. Within the past few months, I've actualized what I felt for years. I feel that I am polyamorous. Every relationship I've been in for the past 15 years always ends up the same, no matter how good or bad it is. I end up falling for another person I develop a strong connection with. Now, after being in a monogamous, really serious relationship for the past year and a half, I'm feeling guilty for realizing this so late in the game. I used to beat myself up for feeling so strongly attracted to others. I call myself an idiot and ridiculous and just overall shame myself until I was mentally and physically sick over it. And then my serious monogamous relationship would end because I didn't want to end up cheating on the other person. Thankfully, listening to your podcast has given me a name to what I've known for so long. Unfortunately, once again, here I am in the same predicament. I'm so scared to talk to my boyfriend now because I think I will hurt his feelings really badly and lose him forever. He is my best friend and the one I want to marry and spend forever with. So here's my predicament. I also have this really great friend. He's hot and has a great personality, and we connect on so many levels, just like my current boyfriend and I do. My friend is aware I feel this way about him, and he feels the same about me. We really want to have sex and merge our energies together because we both feel it will be fun and fulfilling and be just a positive experience all around. My question is, do I tell the boyfriend about this one person where it will most likely just be a sexy fling and fulfilling and improving upon our sexual energies, or do I keep this one for myself and wait and see if it happens again in the future? I don't know. Then obviously I should tell my boyfriend that I'm polyamorous. What if it never happens again and I just threw away the love of my life for nothing? I don't want to lose my boyfriend and I hate to keep anything from him, but I just cannot deny my poly side any longer as it's making me emotionally and sexually ill and negatively affecting my current relationship. I cannot deny my innate desire to connect with others romantically as well. I love this podcast. It has become my Bible and I feel awakened to everything I've known for so long and felt badly for. Thank you, Dan. I'm glad you love the podcast. Uh, I do want to just throw this out there, a little asterisk. I have never described sex as the merging of energies together. That is not something you've ever heard me say on this podcast. That, that's your – I respect 
your right to describe how sex feels to you in your own terms. But I just want all the other listeners to know that I've never said merge our energies together. That's a little woohoo, little crystals hanging in the window for me. But I, but you can, you can put it that way. I wouldn't put it that way. Uh, another thing I wouldn't put quite the way you put it is you describe yourself as poly. And this is a debate that I've had with some poly folks that uh, I don't think poly is an orientation. I think poly is a relationship model. I think we are all naturally attracted to other people. I think that, um, it's possible for most of us to be in romantic love with more than one person at a time, just as you can love more than one child, more than one parent. Of course, you can be sexually and romantically attracted to and even in love with more than one person at a time. So this is really this argument about poly as relationship model versus poly as orientation is really uh, a large debate um, uh, with a, you know distinctions without much of a difference because I do think that we're all basically naturally poly capable, capable of being poly. Not everybody wants to be in a poly relationship because it can be complicated and not everybody wants to be poly. I don't think that if everybody was just free and easy and breezy that everyone would be poly. Anyway, you know yourself well enough now to know that you will be romantically and sexually attracted to others and incapable of refraining from acting on those attractions. You are going to fuck other people even if you're in a committed relationship with one person. Your boyfriend of 1.5 years has a right to that information. You really should share that with him before he gets in any deeper. You say you're afraid of hurting him. Yeah, it'll be painful for him if he's really invested in being in a monogamous relationship despite himself experiencing romantic and sexual attraction to others. It will be painful for him to hear that. It will be more painful for him to discover that after you've cheated on him, violating an explicit or implicit default setting monogamous commitment at three years or five years or ten years, particularly if at ten years he finds out this has been happening a lot and all the time. And don't engage in twatful thinking here, like dickful thinking but with twats. You're not going to fuck this other guy and get the – merging energies with others thing out of your system. You've said over the last 15 years, you've done this in every relationship you've ever been in. You've always encountered other people that you were attracted to and felt compelled to act on those attractions and merge your energies together. This is something you now know about yourself and you know it to be true. And this is going to characterize your sexual and romantic life going forward as it's characterized since you hit puberty for the last 15 fucking years. Your Boyfriend, your potential life partner, not the man you want to marry, but a man you would like to marry has a right to know this. If that's not what he wants, then he's not what you want and you're not what he wants. You need to go find somebody else that you can establish this lifelong commitment, this pair bond with, with it just being on the table that there will be other lovers in your life, not sex with other people occasionally, but other people you have a romantic attachment to other lovers, and he will be allowed to have other lovers as well, and you two will be poly together. But that has to be opt-in for the boyfriend. And yes, it may hurt your boyfriend to end this relationship now, but it will hurt your boyfriend much more to end the relationship after he's your husband or the father of your children. And this has happened again and again and again, and he finds the fuck out. So now that you know this about yourself, now that you can articulate it, thanks to the Bible that is the Savage Love Cast, you are here's you know if i wrote the bible that makes me god i guess here's god the voice of god telling you that you have to go and tell all of this everything you said to us all the thousands and thousands of people listening to this show you have to go tell your boyfriend 
And if it ends your relationship, then you can go fuck this other guy, merge your energies together with that other guy with a clear conscience. And who knows? Maybe this other guy who's up for fucking you despite the fact that you have a boyfriend is the guy that you should partner with. You may end things with your boyfriend or things may end with your boyfriend. He may end things with you once you tell him. Then you can run off and fuck this other guy. And he knows that fucking you doesn't mean you're not going to fuck other people. And that could be the beginning of a beautiful lifelong commitment between the two of you instead of you and the guy you're currently with. Hi, Dan. It's Kyle calling from Canada. I'm calling because I have a situation with a girl. I'm attracted to her. But let's just say I'm not attracted enough. That being said, I feel there's a spark. I think she's a fantastic person. Um, I enjoy being friends with her. But I want to fuck. I want to fuck. I want to engage with her on that level. I don't know how to break it to her because, in all honesty, I love our friendship as it is now. I don't want to jeopardize it by introducing the question in the wrong way. So any advice you can give me on maybe how it'd be possible to at least gauge whether she's open to a friends with benefits, but a sincere friends with benefits, because I really do like this person. We have a lot in common, uh, but I'm not interested in an intimate relationship with her as in monogamous and all that. I want to fuck. And I'm hoping she'd love to fuck too. It'd be fantastic. If you can just let me know, how can I approach someone who I dearly care about and uh, have uh, a great deal of respect for without coming across as a sleazebag? So you want to propose a friends with benefits relationship or arrangement with this woman without risking offending her or fucking up the relationship, the friendship you already have with her. Uh, here's how you do that. You don't do that. There is no way to do that. I'm not saying you will definitely fuck up your friendship or cause offense or freak her out if you throw this on the table, but that is a potential. There, there are risks here. But the thing about risk, no risk, no reward. The reward, if you put that out there on the table and she's into it or up for it, is you know some intimacy, some great sex between friends, which is a real thing and can be really wonderful. People can catch feelings in a friends with benefits relationship. So just describing it as that out of the gate doesn't immunize you against her developing romantic feelings for you, nor does it immunize you against developing romantic feelings for her. There are people that I know in loving, committed, romantic relationships who began as friends with benefits, holding each other's with tongs and pretending that the feelings wouldn't ever come and get them. They were just going to touch each other with their junk and the feelings were in a box in the basement, uh, never to be seen ever again. doesn't always work that way. But you can't get what you want if you don't ask for it. And there's always a risk when you ask for it that the other person will say no or be offended or be squicked out. You can control for that a little bit. I've talked about this a lot when we talked about how do you ask somebody to have a three-way with you and your partner. By basically inviting rejection, especially women have a hard time saying no, especially to men, right? The way women are socialized, the way the culture beats it into women. They have to be endlessly deferential to the male. So it really would help if you want to minimize the chances that she's going to be offended or the relationship is going to be irrevocably destroyed if she's not into it. It really would help to say, listen, I know this might be offensive. I know that 
you might not be up for this, and I'm apologizing in advance if you're offended. And if you're not into this, please just say no, and I can hear a no, and I won't let hearing that no, you know, ruin how I feel for you as a friend. Blah blah blah. You basically open the door as wide as possible to make them feel, particularly if you're hitting on a woman, as comfortable as possible rejecting you. And then even if she isn't into it, she will feel by the way you behave, by the way you rolled it out, that you are basically a sane and trustworthy person who does care about her feelings even if she doesn't share a desire to fuck you, to have an FWB relationship with you. And then you can burn through the awkwardness and the discomfort hopefully if you laid that groundwork out in advance. If you made her feel comfortable rejecting you before you even asked, inviting the rejection before you asked. That's how you – you can't eliminate the awkwardness or discomfort if the other person is into it, but you can minimize it and put yourself or both of you in a position to work through and get past that awkwardness and return to the relationship that already existed post-rejection. If indeed there is a rejection, there's always the chance she will say yes. Hey, Dan. My question is about the guy who I dated, I don't know, a few months ago. And um, we dated for a couple months. And um, he was very sex negative. He was like kind of judgmental about my past. Like he was judgmental about the very kind of mild kinky stuff that I wanted to do. And just generally like in some ways not that much fun in bed because I think of the sex negativity and maybe some of his own shame or or whatever. But um, anyway, I broke up with him and I told him I hadn't gotten over my ex, which is kind of true, but also kind of just one of those like lies that you tell to smooth things over. My question is, um, he wrote me a letter. We otherwise, like, you know, connected and had good times. I don't want to date him again. Um, my question is, do I just let it lie? Like, I got out. I had an excuse. That's it. Or do I tell him in, you know, in an email or something, you know, hey, listen, you know, I've been thinking about it, but, and, you know, part of the reason that it didn't work out with us is because I felt like you were sex negative. Um, and that kind of just turned me off and didn't, you know, I don't know, just to help him along the way. I guess it's not my responsibility, but um, what would what would you do? I'm I'm un- uncertain. I think he seems like the kind of person who would want to learn from um, his past mistakes, and he seemed to like me and like came into the you know relationship in good faith. So I feel a little bit bad not not cluing him in. At the same time, sometimes it could just be nicer just to skip it and like let him figure it out. Remember earlier in the show where I mentioned that women are socialized to be very deferential to men, to always put men's feelings first. Here's a really good example. This caller, you, you were dating this guy who was shitty to you, who judged you about your past, who shamed you about your mild kinks. That had to be very hurtful and painful for you to then have sex with somebody who was shutting you down and being judgy and shitty to you about who you are sexually and about your sexual history, about everything that formed you and shaped you and brought you to his bed and then he takes a dump on that. Talk about ingratitude, right? And then getting out of the relationship for fear of hurting him, you trot out this face-saving lie. You spared his feelings, this man who did not make any effort to spare yours or even take yours into consideration when he was interacting with you sexually, you went to some effort to spare him. And isn't that too bad? And isn't that how it usually goes? Men bumble around knocking shit over and – Women have to extricate themselves from this relationship with always seeming the first concern – I think subconsciously the first concern being how to get out of this relationship without hurting his precious male fifis. That's too bad. He needs to know that 
he blew it, that he shit the bed, that his sex negativity, that his judgment, that his shaming deprived him of this relationship with you. That could have been awesome if he wasn't such a fucking shitbag in bed, if he wasn't so sex negative. And it's not just sex negative, which sometimes is a term that people slap on people who don't share their kinks, who aren't as into whatever as they're into. Sometimes some people who are you know, in open relationships or super kinky will slap the sex negative label on other people who are just doing what they want to do, which may be more vanilla or more mainstream or more monogamous, right? But that isn't the case here. He was legitimately judgy, shitty, shamey, and that's a problem. And it's really hard to be open sexually with somebody who is judgy, shitty, shamey to you because it inhibits and it costs him this relationship. I definitely think you should send him an email saying this is why it really ended and I like you and he's reaching out to you in hopes of getting back together theoretically, presumably, and you should let him know that if that's not on the table, it's not on the table and let him know why. He may be thinking that you know a certain amount of time has passed now and she told me when she ended it that it was because she wasn't over her ex. Maybe she's over her ex now and if I just wait here in the wings long enough, she'll be ready to be in a relationship with me. And he needs to know that the person he is right now disqualifies him from being in a relationship with you because the person he is right now, at least on the sexual front, is kind of fucking shitty and judgy and awful and made you feel bad about who you are. Tell him that. He needs to know that. And who knows, maybe he'll run off and get a shrink and work on it for two years and you'll get a lovely long apology email and maybe then you'll want to see him with his pants off again. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old in a long-term relationship. I was with my boyfriend for six years now. Um, I have a question about birth control. I'm on the pill right now and I was thinking about switching to a more permanent form of birth control. I was talking to my doctor about an IUD and she mentioned that it has a wire or a string that hangs down that my partner might be able to feel and might poke him. And this freaks me out. I don't know. If I was totally set on this, my and my boyfriend would be supportive. And I don't want him to be poked. Like, have you heard of this? Does this hurt? Do they just feel it? I don't know. Let me know what you think. Thank you. Joining me by phone to help field this question, Dr. Kara Cadwallader is the Senior Medical Director for Planned Parenthood of the Greater Northwest or the Great Northwest. Uh, thanks for jumping on the phone today, Dr. Cadwallader. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So we're going to first tackle this question about IUDs, but we pulled a couple other questions about uh, sexually transmitted infections and people's concerns, and we're going to actually occupy the next 20, 30 minutes of your time. I hope that's all right. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so this first question, the IUD. Uh, general info first. Give us the rundown on IUDs. People, including me, I sometimes forget when I'm rattling off birth control options, I sometimes forget even to mention IUDs. Why is that? Why are IUDs uh, not talked about as much, and what do people need to know about them? Sure. Um, well, I think IUDs sort of have a bad rap from the, um, from the past in that a couple decades ago, the technology wasn't that great, and a lot of women had, who had IUDs were, had complications from them, infections, um, problems that could lead up to serious um, issues like infertility. So they got sort of a bad rap in the 60s and 70s, but the technology has completely changed, and it should be actually the first thing that comes to mind when you think about contraception because they are incredibly effective um, as effective as tying your tubes, actually, wow. but reversible, right? So if you say, hey, I don't want to have a, 
uh, kid right now, but I might in a couple years. It's a great choice because if you want to get pregnant, you just have them removed. Um, so they're safe, they're effective, super cost effective too for women because if you compare sort of you know buying pills every month or paying for the ring or the patch, as opposed to having you know one one step procedure, the IUD sits in your uterus and is effective from between five and twelve years. So cost effective, safe, super effective for contraception. And I think in the last few years, actually, it's really risen to the top of um, sort of consciousness, at least for um, reproductive health providers and what we should be helping women um, think about as a great contraceptive choice. Are there different kinds of IUDs? Yeah, there. Um, Worldwide, there are multiple different types. There are only two, um, well, three, but two um, sort of different um, categories of IUD that are available in the United States. So there's one that has no hormone in it. It's just a copper, it's called a copper T, and it works um, without any medication. So a lot of women like that because some of the um, hormone side effects can be, you know, bad. You know, your, your breasts hurt or you have spotting or you gain weight. Or you have low libido, which is also a complication with some hormonal birth control. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is kind of, then why bother contracepting, right? If you have no sex drive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's a nice choice for women who really don't want to have any hormone in their body and it works extremely well. So that's one sort of category. And in the U.S. there's just one choice, Mm. which is called a paragard or a copper IUD. And then the other category is uh, the type of IUD that actually slowly releases hormone over time. And there's a couple different ones on the market. They all use a a class of hormone called a progestin hormone, which is also safe, pretty low um, side effect profile in terms of a lot of the, you know, libido like that you mentioned, but they can cause side effects. But again, very effective for contraception. And the good thing about the hormone-containing IUDs is they tend to make women's periods less heavy, so they don't bleed as much, and less pain and cramping with them. So for women who have really gnarly periods, they're, they're a nice choice because they can make those much more tolerable. So those are the two main categories of IUDs that are available in the U.S. Okay, just to, to clear it up for me because I'm confused, uh, an IUD that releases hormone blocks ovulation, right? That's what hormonal contraceptives do. Yeah, it, you know, that, that's another very uh, pertinent question because IUDs work in lots of different ways. We don't totally understand that scientifically. We know that the ones that contain hormone um, can... Um, prevent ovulation, but they also have local, uh, we call local effects just on the uterus itself. So they change, women have what we call cervical mucus. So they have sort of a, a blob of mucus that sits in the lower part of the uterus. And the, the IUDs that have hormone change that cervical mucus and make it harder for sperm to actually come up through the cervix, enter the uterus and, you know, fertilize an egg. So their main effectiveness is more the, the way they change the uterine environment and make it sort of a hostile place for sperm. So, and, and, what is a, um, and what is a copper IUD doing differently without hormones? The copper IUD around? in a very poorly understood way blocks ovulation and that's its main me- method of um, action. So, so they've actually done crazy research on women and, and, note, and they can tell that women who have a copper IUD and rarely ovulate, they almost never pop out an egg. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Even so, though there's no hormone. So we don't understand quite how it works, but we're confident enough in its safety that we should recommend it first. Absolutely. I think that those two, either the copper or the hormone-containing IUD, depending on the woman's particular circumstances. And then the third um, reversible... Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. I want to interrupt there. I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that, though. We don't understand how it works. (laughs) 
We're going to put this in your uterus and trust us. It's effective, but we don't know why or how, but it's, but we know, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know how it works, but we know it's perfectly safe. Like, help, That's because you have the misunderstanding that medicine is a science. <laughs> we, we have tested it years and years of research looking at, um, you know, health effects on women, and it has been shown to be very safe, really low risk of infection. So that's the big risk. That's the big thing women are concerned about. You know, gosh, you're going to stick a foreign body up in my uterus. That doesn't sound good. I don't want to get an infection. Mm-hmm. And actually, the infection risk is really low. And women who um, we've studied them over the years, you know, up to 10 to 12 years when uh, copper IUD in their uterus do great. They have minimal side effects. Um, so we know it affects ovulation. We don't totally understand the mechanism of how that copper piece blocks um, the, the ovaries from popping out an egg. And we cop- do know it's safe and effective. And, and we've been using these copper IUDs long enough to know that there's no long-term risks either. Decades and decades, yes. Okay. And so one last question about these two options, the copper, sure. the hormonal. The hormonal IUDs, they release hormones over time. How often do they have to be replaced? It depends on the type of IUD. Anywhere from three years with a new device that's just been released on the market up to, um, excuse me, um, seven years with um, something called a Mirena. So it depends on the device itself, how much hormone is wrapped in there and the size of the device, but anywhere from three to seven years. Okay. Now let's get to the caller's question. There is a string or a wire. Is it going to poke her boyfriend in the head of the penis when they have intercourse? Is that a risk? Is that a risk for IUDs, penis poking? That, that Excellent question. And I have to say almost every woman that I put an IUD in has that same question. Um, and yes, there is a string. Not so much a wire. It actually feels a lot like fishing line. Um, if you're a fisher person, um, that kind of um, thin, transparent line that you, you have on your fishing pole. The good thing about the vagina, there are lots of great things about the vagina, but the one good thing is that it's a really moist environment. There's a lot of secretions, and over time, that what starts out like a fishing line gets really soft. It absorbs mucus, and it becomes much less um, pokey and sort of obnoxious. Um, most women's partners are not aware of their IUD. In fact, some women who are in relationships where they can't let their partner know they're contracepting, will choose an IUD because their partners are not aware of it. Some women do say that their partners are aware of it. And in that setting, they can come back into the clinic and we can um, trim those. So we tend to leave those strings sort of long and they soften and they wrap up around the cervix and, and most women have you know no problems with that. But if their partners are um, feeling them or uncomfortable with them, we can sort of adjust and trim those. That said, you know, there are a few, few folks who it's not, it, they, work great for contraception, but they don't like that. Their partners don't like them and they end up not being a great choice for them, but that's definitely the minority. And so with most women, we advise them to, if it's otherwise a great contraceptive choice to go for it, come back in if their partner's aware of the strings and let us try to trim them up for them. And then as it softens in the, you know, the moist vagina over time, it tends not to be an issue. Hey, Dan, it's Kevin here calling from Manhattan. You talk a lot uh, in the context of talking about uh, PrEP and Truvada about what is the next scourge that's going to be a sexually transmitted disease. And I just wanted to throw out there into the ring the topic of meningitis. My partner died of it about two and a half years ago, and right now I'm part of the lobbying team lobbying the New York State Senate and Assembly on meningitis protocols, vaccinations for children. It's not a sexually transmitted disease, but what we saw in 2012 and 2013 was a massive spread of people passing meningitis, especially gay men passing meningitis through 
um, everything from bathhouses to, um, you know, gym locker rooms to bars to sharing a drink to sharing a cigarette, all these things because it's so much of a saliva-based problem. And I would venture to say that if left unchecked, this is the next scourge that is going to kill because it kills sometimes within three days, sometimes within hours of showing symptoms. Back in 2012, when my partner died, we had no idea that there was a vaccine. We had no idea there was a risk and a danger. So in the context of talking about PrEP, in the context of talking about Truvada, in the context of talking about what is next for us that we're going to have to deal with within our sexual lives, meningitis is here. It's a massive problem. It's still killing people. It's killing extraordinarily healthy HIV negative people and teenagers very, very quickly. There's a, about a 15 to 20% mortality rate. Another 20% on top of that will be left with disabilities that will end their life quicker than it otherwise would. So, Dan, please hop on the vaccine bandwagon on this one. We could use your help. Thanks. So meningitis is technically means inflammation of the meninges, and the meninges are the tissue that covers the brain and, and um, central nervous system. So any kind of infection that affects that tissue over the brain and central nervous system is considered meningitis. So that can be a virus um, that can cause that. Um, it can also be different types of bacteria. And depending on the the intensity of the infection can be very severe and life-threatening, such as, you know, the, as the caller has made very, um, very clear. Um, and we can test for that. We test for that by taking a sample of the spinal fluid. Um, and, and meningitis can affect all ages, but um, people that are particularly susceptible are the very young, so babies, elderly folks, and then folks who have a compromised immune system for, for whatever reason. So in Planned Parenthood, in health circles, are people talking about meningitis as if it is a new or emerging sexually transmitted infection? Is it a sexually transmitted infection? Yeah, another great question. It is not considered a sexually transmitted infection, but it's a great um, question from the caller, and I want to express my um, sadness around losing his partner. Oh, so um, do I. My, my and, sympathy too, Kevin. Yeah, um, I mean, heart- that's incredibly... T- Tragic. And our hearts go out to you and that you're plowing some part of your grief into activism on this is so commendable. And thank Yeah, you absolutely. That. And I think that's a way some of the most incredible changes in our country have happened through folks who, are, you know, have grieved the loss of a partner and, you know, stood back up and done something about it. So um, it's inspirational to hear um, your, um, the call. And we don't think of, we don't think of meningitis as a sexually transmitted disease, but a lot of diseases that are transmittable are, of course, transmittable when we're in close contact, whether that's, you know, intimate or sexually intimate or just, you know, in a college dorm room, in the military. Meningitis um, can be caused by lots of different types of organisms, um, viruses, bacteria. The type that his partner died from, from what he's explained, was meningococcal meningitis, which is probably the worst of the bunch. Super infectious, very deadly um, Folks, who, it's not super common, but it can occur in outbreaks like he described. Um, and it makes me think of, you know, a lot of times we're thinking of fighting these huge battles against, you know, diseases that we don't understand very well are really hard to control, like Ebola. Um, but things like meningitis, you know, have an excellent effective vaccine. And, you know, the caller expressed, I think, his frustration that, you know, we're not doing a great job at 
vaccinating our population and completely preventing a totally preventable illness. So it's frustrating to have the tools to be able to prevent these types of outbreaks, um, but not be utilizing them well, both in the private and public health sector. Um, who, who, the immunization, who should get vaccinated ahead. against meningitis? Are there any risks to the vaccine and where do people get their hands on the meningitis vaccine? You bet. So the recommendations for healthy folks um, are in adolescents. So it's recommended that adolescents between the ages of 11 and 18 get a single immunization and then a booster after age 16. So if you got that when you were a teenager, if your parents took you to the clinic and you got your first dose, you know, maybe at 12 and then a booster at um, after age 16, you're, you should be immune. And those, those kiddos do not need ongoing immunization. So if we could target that population, right, because those are, that's a group that's frequently in to see their doctor, right? They're going in for regular checkups. So to me, that's the window of opportunity to get all those kids vaccinated early. Um, the problem is if those kids get missed, adults aren't coming into clinic very often, right, to see a regular provider unless they're ill. And if they're ill, often they're not thinking about, oh, gosh, I should get caught up on my preventive health vaccines. And neither is their um, clinician or physician often not thinking in that regard. So we often miss those opportunities when people come in for colds or flus to catch them up on really important immunizations such as um, uh, meningococcal uh, meningitis. The other group that it's recommended for are sort of these high-risk um, folks that are in close contact. So again, college students, right? They're all crammed in dorms, close living quarters, um, folks in the military, um, and then people who are immunosuppressed, um, folks living with HIV or on medications for, you know, various cancers that suppress their immune system. So it's recommended that that group also, if they didn't get the appropriate immunizations in adolescence, that they get those catch-up vaccines. There's a lot of publicity in the U.S. about adverse um, reactions to vaccines, and I'm sure you've seen that, you know, in the media. A lot of that data is not very good, but it gets a lot of playtime because it's scary, right? If there's one one incident of a bad a- outcome and it's your kid, then, then um, you know, you want the world to know. But the research on vaccines is actually very robust and good that, that the ones that are recommended by the CDC and the big organizations that guide us um, are safe and effective. And the vaccine for meningitis is very safe and very effective. The problem is not everyone gets it. One quick final question about meningitis and the vaccine. Uh, people may not remember if they were vaccinated as children, as minors. Their parents may not recall. They may not be able to access their medical records from when they were kids. Is there any harm potentially in getting vaccinated again, even if you're immune? That's a great question. There isn't. The harm is probably expense. You know, you have to pay for it or your health insurance does. If you didn't need it, there's some expense related to that. And then, you know, none of us like getting shots. So, um, but true harm in terms of causing significant reactions or illness because you had an extra vaccine in the event that you already got it, it isn't there. So, if, if in doubt, go in and, and get your booster, unlikely to cause any significant harm and better to be safe, especially if you're in one of those groups. And the caller mentions, you know, being in New York City um, in environments of bathhouses or close contact um, with men, um, that's not a defined risk group when I was um, reviewing some of the literature. But any group that's close together and close contact, especially intimate contact, should, should make sure they're immunized. 
Um, hi, Dan Savage. It's flu season, and everyone's flu vaccine seems not to have worked. And I was wondering if it's safe to have sex with my boyfriend as long as I don't, like, kiss him on the mouth. Can I somehow get the flu through contact with his penis? So your boyfriend has the flu, and he's feeling really sad, and you don't have the flu, and you're staying away from his face, from his <laughs> nose and from his mouth. Can you give him a cheer him up blowjob, or are you going to catch the flu from his dick like that? <laughs> you could do it, but you're probably going to get the flu, and, but it's not from his penis. <laughs> so it depends on how much you love your boyfriend. Um, the flu, true influenza, so not just your average virus that we're all getting, you know, uh, half the winter, but really true influenza from influenza A or B virus, the one that makes you sick as a dog, you know, out for a week fever, headache, can't work, can't take care of your kids, can't do anything. That virus is spread through respiratory secretions, what we call it. So the snot in your nose, the stuff you're coughing up, the virus sits in these big droplets. And the way it's spread is if you cough those droplets out or sneeze, those droplets float through the air. And depending on how close you are to them, you, you breathe them in. So, um, you're not going to get it from the penis per se, but my guess is if you're close enough to be giving him a blowjob, then you're probably close enough that if he sneezes, you're going to breathe those droplets in. So I guess it's uh, uh, true, but not true, right? You can, you can catch the flu, but it's from him sneezing or coughing on you, not from the penis itself. So So, so he could maybe wear a mask. I was going to say, if you want to be safe, you can put a plastic bag over his head with a lot of air in it and try to give him a (laughs) blowjob. In like 90 That's seconds, right. 90 seconds, you have 90 seconds tops before you have to run out of the room and tear the bag off his head. That, that's great. I hadn't thought of that. I was thinking more of a mask, but the, the plastic bag is definitely more dramatic. Now, we talk about viruses living in you know, people's mucosa, mucous membranes, and you, know, you sneeze, you cough, and the virus leaps out into the world. There are mucous membranes you know, in the vagina. There are mucous membranes in the penis, are there not? Absolutely. And does the virus um, live there too, or are you just going to get sneezed on? The virus isn't in the dick? This, isn't in the junk? This particular virus doesn't like the dick or vagina. It, it really likes the respiratory tract. So that's not true of other viruses. You know, for instance, the herpes virus loves the mucous membranes of the penis, of the vagina, um, of the mouth, um, and doesn't really like the lungs as much, though it can be in the lungs. So the respiratory viruses such as, you know, good old colds, the influenza that I think her question was particular to, really like the respiratory tract, so that, which includes the nose, back down the throat, into the, into the lungs. It doesn't mean that there would be zero virus detectable, say, in other areas of the body. It certainly can be. But the levels are often so low that the, the people can't transmit it that way. So the predominant way is coughing and sneezing. Now, you could get that on your hands, right? So you could sneeze, get it all over your hands, and touch your partner. Now you've got the droplets on your hands. You're maybe touching her mouth. She can get them that way. Um, But largely, it's from coughing and sneezing. And that's why we tend to get sick in the winter, right? Because we're all smashed in with each other. It's cold, and we're indoors, and we're not outside, you know, in, in the fresh air. And that's why we get more sick in the winter, because we're just smashed up or coughing, sneezing on each other and, and passing these things around. So it sounds like if you live with someone and they have the flu, odds are you're probably going to get it too or be exposed to it. Who knows how your immune system will respond, whether it can fight it off. So you might as well just go ahead and give them the fucking blowjob anyway. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was going to say that, but you, you said it better than I could. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is a gay male, 24-year-old uh, from San Francisco, and huge fan of your show. But I am hoping that you can shed some light and finally, you know, get a better understanding about herpes. Because I am currently in a monogamous relationship uh, with my boyfriend as of the past four months. And we decided recently that we wanted to start having unprotected sex. So trying to be a responsible adult, I go to my doctor and ask her to get me tested for everything um, because me and my partner would like to start having unprotected sex, but want to make sure that we are you know, doing it safely. And her response to this is great, except for the fact that herpes, which was one of the ones on my list that I was told I should get tested for in doing some research, she said, well, you know, I'm not really sure you want to get tested for that. And she gave the explanation of so many people having it now uh, in the modern day, you know, somewhere close to 80% of people having it that it's broken up many relationships and caused a lot of stress in relationships. And just the fact of knowing has such a stigma um, that it's caused a lot of turmoil. And so from a medical perspective, um, many doctors only really treat it when it becomes an issue and when it becomes symptomatic in people. And before that, there's really no preventative, there's no preventative uh, treatment uh, and they don't even recommend it. So I'm in a bit of a quandary because uh, I don't know if... I should or shouldn't be getting tested for this. And, you know, I don't think my boyfriend would care um, as I've already given him mono before this. And he seemed to kind of laugh it off um, and uh, wasn't a big issue. But at the same time, it seems to have a huge stigma. and And I just think that people should know whether or not you know, this should be a big deal or shouldn't be a big deal? Do I have a moral responsibility? Do we both have moral responsibility to go and to get tested? And even if we're positive, then to, you know, break the stigma and still have sex or, um, you know, just leave it be as my doctor recommends. So if you or one of your guests could shed some more light on herpes stigma and whether or not it should be a big deal or shouldn't, whether we should confront it or whether just sweep it under the rug, I would be most appreciative. So is this true? Are healthcare providers or, or STI uh, testers at Planned Parenthood, for instance, not testing people for herpes because they don't want them to have to wrestle with the stigma? Gosh, that, it's it's an excellent question. It, it's a super complicated question. And I think um, what the caller reports is probably mostly true, that if you went in completely healthy, He's, he's healthy. It sounds like he doesn't have a history that he knows of of herpes. His partner and monogamous partner is healthy. That most folks in that setting wouldn't strongly recommend it. But, but there's a lot of nuance, I think, to his question. If I can just give you a little background on herpes, herpes simplex virus, there's two types. There's type 1 and type 2. And we used to think that type 1 mostly gave us, you know, the cold sore, right? So that when you get it, you know, you're out in the sun and you get a big old nasty blister on your lip. We've all had, most of us have had those. That's from a herpes virus. But we used to think that was type 1. And then type 2 was the one that would cause blisters or um, problems in the, in the anal or genital region for both men and women. But we've learned in the last decade or so that HSV-1, the type that we think of as just causing cold sores, can also cause genitals. So 
so it's complicated in that um, when we are doing testing, for, for instance, with this um, the caller, we could test for in his blood for evidence of prior infection for 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 herpes, and we would get results on both the type one and the type two and test his partner as well. the The challenge is it's hard to distinguish if he has been exposed. Let's say he had a cold sore when he was a kid, he would come up positive for probably type one. Does that mean he doesn't have genital herpes? Well, no, because we know that, you know, back to your previous call, if you give someone, have oral sex with someone who has had herpes on their lip, even if they don't have a sore, you can get herpes in your genitalia. So they can, they can move back and forth. So he could perhaps test positive and he'll have no idea. Does that mean he has genital herpes or just oral? Who knows? So it's hard it's hard to know what to do with the information you get when you're testing people that have no history of herpes at all. And in the general population in the United States, 20% of all U.S. adults will test positive for the type 2, the anal, what we think of as the anal genital virus strain. Mm-hmm. And more than half, 50, 58%, will test positive for type 1 by the time you're in your fourth decade of life. So, you know, you're in your 30s to 40s. So more than half the people have been exposed to at least the one that often causes oral lesions, but can cause genital stuff too. So it's confusing because of now what do you do? Let's say he tests positive for type one and his partner doesn't test positive for anything. Is there a huge risk? Well, he can pass the virus, even if he's not got a blister either on his lips or his genitals, he can pass it to his, apart, his partner. And that's called, we call that asymptomatic shedding, meaning, you know, you can pass the virus even when you have no symptoms or have never had symptoms. Mm-hmm. So would they want to use, you know, condoms for oral sex as well? You know, it, it's just, I think the trouble with testing is we don't really know what to do with the information once we get it. So, so you're back, you're, you're backing this doctor up that it might be better not to test because, most people who have been exposed, who quote-unquote have it, are asymptomatic and will never show symptoms. And then they have this mental burden going forward of having to disclose something that in almost all cases is going to be a big non-issue. Yeah, I guess the caveat, because um, I'm not going to let you pin me down that easily. <laughs> the caveat <laughs> would be, and what I would tell the the gentleman who called, is if both he and his partner were negative, so they get the blood test, Neither of them have ever had any symptoms. They're both negative for both the type 1 and type 2 strain. Then they're golden, right? Neither of them have been exposed. If they're monogamous, they have at it, right? Mm -hmm. No risk. So that would be probably great information for them if that were the case. It's unlikely because, as I mentioned, you know, more than half the population at least has the type 1 virus. Um, But if they were both um, negative, then great. Um, They could have, you know, completely unprotected sex and at least not worry about herpes. And I think as long as they know that if they got other information, one of them's positive for at least one of the viruses, that it would be difficult. It involves a lot of discussion around what what does that mean. Um, you can also have gotten exposed, let's say, to the type 2, the genital, usual genital virus, years ago and never had any symptoms and then boom, have have a full outbreak like two, three, four years later. And, of course, you're thinking, thanks a lot to your current partner, right? right? But you might have had that virus for years. So I think as long as folks going in to get testing understand 
what the results may or may importantly not mean, and then have a really good discussion afterwards. I think it's reasonable to do it in that setting if, if they strongly want that information. And to read about it first, because the fear of herpes exists out of all proportion to the actual impacts of herpes. And there are real risks, particularly for pregnant women uh, with herpes. And people need to be, I think, aware, particularly pregnant women if, need to be aware of whether they've been exposed or not. Um, but people's fear of what herpes could mean if they were ever exposed versus what it actually means in almost all instances post-exposure is just so wildly out of proportion. I could spend all day answering my mail just talking <laughs> people off the herpes ledge. <laughs> They're terror of Yeah, it. and I often do. In my job, that's a lot of what I do, <laughs> talking them off the herpes ledge. Well, you're right. I think it's incredibly stigmatized. It doesn't have a lot of long-term consequences in terms of like some other virus, for instance, HIV, chlamydia, especially for women, which silent, you know, often asymptomatic and cause infertility. So, you know, there's a lot worse players out in the STI world that get very low billing and should <laughs> should knock herpes off its ledge. And you know what else should be knocked off its ledge? Unrealistic expectations. There are people that I know <laughs> who have multiple sex partners who, you know, roll through life sleeping with, and not just gay people, a lot of straight people too, with, you know, 10, 20, 30 partners a year and then freak out when someone discloses to them that they have herpes or have had herpes or were exposed to herpes when someone, you know, does the right thing and they run from that person. And I look at them and I think most of the people, if you're sleeping with 20, 30 people a year, you're already sleeping with a lot of people who have herpes who don't know it or didn't tell you. So freaking Absolutely. out at the person who told you is just magical thinking and irrational and crazy. <laughs> and it incentivizes Absolutely. that person not telling anybody else going forward. Well, and the, and the person who's having the 20 partners and mad about the one partner exposed is often um, positive themselves and passing around but just doesn't know it because most of the transmission is from people who don't know they have the virus and they've never had symptoms or, you know, herpes is like the great masquerader too because we all know, oh, blisters in our genitals, that's probably herpes, but herpes likes to do lots of different things. So you may just, it may hurt when you pee, that's herpes. You may just have some itching down there, that's herpes. So most people don't know they have it. And so that person who's so pissed off because his one partner, you know, divulged that, most likely already had herpes and is passing it around to all those other partners as well because number of partners is definitely risk. I'm going to try to pin you down on this because this is the question I get frequently from people who have herpes. Knowing that most people have been exposed, knowing that in most instances it's a big non-issue, knowing that there's this huge unfair out of all proportion stigma attached to it, are people who know they have it obligated to disclose? Do they have to disclose? I get this question from people who have herpes who want yeah. my permission not to disclose because of, <laughs> because of these things that to me seem pretty salient and they want my blessing to not disclose, but I'm a discloser junkie. I think everybody should throw everything out on the table and that's how we'll most quickly get to making non-issues out of having a trans girlfriend or having herpes, not that yeah. I'm equating them, or being gay or being whatever or being kinky or being poly. Like the more people who are out about it, the less of an issue it becomes. But I get this question frequently. I have herpes. People freak out. People I'm telling probably already have been exposed to have it too. Am I obligated to disclose, particularly in – with casual sex partners who are, have many multiple casual sex partners besides me. Am I obligated to disclose Planned Parenthood's position on that, please? <laughs> I'm going to represent my own position on that. <laughs> my position is if, if you're not, not going to disclose, then I think you're obligated to have safer sex. So if you 
choose to disclose and have a great conversation, you both choose to use whatever protection or not. To me, that's informed, and that's between two people who have all the information that at least they um, um, are, are aware is um, relevant. I think if you're not going to disclose, then using a condom is the best way to go. Condoms are good at preventing transmission. Um, I will say in, in a specific population, um, which is men who have sex with men, there is an increased risk of, if you have receptive anal intercourse, of transmission, and it increases your risk of HIV transmission, not not HSV, not herpes transmission, but HIV. So in that setting um, where that person is having high-risk sex um, with uh, with um, others that may be in a, in a population where HIV is more prevalent, I think I think that is an, an, an important distinguishing factor because if if you have herpes, you are you have an increased risk of HIV transmission as well. And the reason for that is because the herpes virus, as you noted, you know, likes the mucosa and it likes to damage the mucosal membrane. So whether that's in the anal region, the vagina, the mouth, um, it breaks down and makes your immune system not as good there because our main protector from the world is our skin, right, that protects us. So if you damage the mucosa, you're at risk for other sexually transmitted infections and, and the big player there is HIV. So I, I don't know if that was a straight up, I think honesty is the best policy. That's what my mom taught me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and discussion of herpes, I think also if we're all talking about it, because probably almost all of us have at least one of the types of viruses, um, that's the best way to decrease stigma. Um, and I think if we're having those conversations, we're much more likely to be practicing safer sex as well because we're having open conversations with our partner or partners. Dr. Kara Cadwallader, Senior Medical Director for Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. It was really fun talking with you. I hope you'll come on the show again. I would love to. And thanks so much for what you do. I think it's fantastic that uh, so many people are having um, great open conversations about sexual health. It makes me happy. And I love Planned Parenthood and support Planned Parenthood. And anyone who can hear the sound of my voice, I want to encourage you to go to Planned Parenthood's website, click on Donate, throw them some money. People who work at Planned Parenthood and the organization get so much grief. Even if you can only give a couple of bucks, five bucks, one of the things that Planned Parenthood could point to when they talk about their donors isn't the size of the donations alone or how much money came in, but how many people donate and how many people across the country support the organization. So even if you could just symbolically, as a gesture, add to that number by making a five-buck donation just once, please do it and you'll be helping Planned Parenthood help you and other people in your community. Thank you, Dr. Cadwallader, for jumping on the phone today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It's great to talk with you. Hey, Dan. Uh, 33, single gay male in Colorado. Uh, I've been out for about 15 years now. Uh, I've noticed that as I've gotten older, I really get off to watching straight and bi porn. I had a girlfriend in high school, and we slept together a few times. I'm now wanting to possibly sleep with a female there would have to be a male involved. And I guess my question to you is, is this weird that I'm having this inclination uh, this late? And where would I go about trying to find a couple who would be interested or willing to do something like this? Is this weird? Is this desire to have a three-way with a man and a woman and sex with the woman weird considering that you've been out and gay uh, identified for more than a decade. Uh, 
weird to find weird. Is it not normal? I guess it's not normal, but who gives a shit? Variance is the norm when it comes to human sexuality. How best to understand yourself? Like you don't, you're not going to be disqualified from identifying as gay. There are a lot of people who round themselves up to gay or down to straight who have some sort of place on the spectrum between gay and straight, right? Uh, how you identify as I always thought of it as a three layer cake. There's who you want to do. That's one layer, what you want to do. Then the next layer is what you are doing. And the top layer is what you tell people. And the more reflective, uh, the top layer is of the middle layer is of the bottom layer, the less conflicted and fucked up and messed up a person you are, right? If what you want is same-sex sex and what you're having is same-sex sex and what you're telling people is that you're straight, you're going to be – you're a closet case and a mess and a train wreck and a Ted Haggard, which is becoming a really dated reference. Go Google it if you don't know who Ted Haggard is. That said, you know there are people who primarily want one thing but around the edges, they have these more sort of amorphous desires or more expansive desires. But then there's what they're doing, which is exclusively all the thing that they primarily want to do. Right, but that, that's huge. Like primarily, almost entirely, you want to do gay stuff with other men, and you romantically and sexually attracted to men. And around the edges, as you've discovered, you have these desires that sort of slop into, pardon me, fluid desires that r flow into, not slop into. It makes it sound like we're feeding pigs. That flow into, you know, technically heterosexual sex, penis and vagina. And then there's what you're doing, which has been gay all this time, and then what you tell people gay. And gay, what you tell people, that top layer, is really the most reflective of what you're doing and what you want. So you're not a conflicted mess if you tell people you're gay, considering particularly that your desire for having some heterosexual sex or experimenting with a woman exists in this context of another man being present. I mean think about it. There are straight guys out there who want to have three ways or gangbangs with their girlfriends or with a woman uh, with other men present. Right, And that doesn't make them gay guys. When two straight guys have sex and their penises touch in the woman, double penetration, are they suddenly magically having a gay experience? Perhaps not. Not really. And there are guys who – straight guys who in the context of a three-way, straight identified guys, in the context of a three-way with another man and a woman may enjoy some incidental or not so incidental same-sex sex. But it's sort of flowing into this – heterosexual dynamic around the woman being central, right? It sounds like the presence of the other man for you is central and the woman is this fetish almost, kink, sideshow, uh, bonus, walk on the wild side, dangerous, exhilarating, not who you really are moment of bungee jumping, sexual bungee jumping and challenging yourself that you want to enjoy. Does that mean you're disqualified from identifying as gay or being gay? No, I don't think so. Some people might. We might hear from them later. You might hear from them if you tell friends about it. But I don't think so. Just as I don't think somebody who is 50-50 bisexual and has an opposite sex partner and has been with that opposite sex partner exclusively their entire life and all of their sex has been opposite sex is required to identify as straight. They can identify as bi. I would encourage them to identify as bi. More bi people need to be out. Even bi people who have never had a same-sex experience or relationship need to be out. To destroy the stigma about – and the invisibility of bi people everywhere, right? We don't say to those people, you're not really bi – or some people would. But I don't. You don't say to those people, you're not really bi. And we're not going to say to you, you're not really gay because you want to dip your dick into a vagina once or twice in your life to take a walk on the wild side. And again, in this context of sex with you and another dude and her, that's adventurous. That's homo-flexible. 
just like some guys are heteroflexible where they want to have that guy, guy, girl three-way and bump dicks or even maybe put a dick in their mouth for a second. Think of the straight guys who are cuckolds who are in these relationships with women where they will help prep the guy who's going to fuck the wife. They will help him get erect or suck him off for a second before he goes into the wife. And there is some homoeroticism obviously and some same-sex desire there but flowing toward a heterosexual act. And you have some opposite-sex desire here flowing toward a homosexual encounter. Blah-dee, 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 blah. A lot of talk to preserve your gay identity. You're welcome. Uh, how do you find this? Where do you find a couple willing to do this? On the internet. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I'm dating this girl who's amazing. She's a male female. She's in the middle of a transition. And it's gone great. And I just love her. And so uh, my dad, as you pointed out, if the parents show half the time with you. Um, he's uh, having a rough time wrapping his head around it. And... Uh, He's, his temper is getting flared up here and there when he's trying to understand it. And so I actually used your advice, and it, I think it really worked, where it's just, like, talk to him about it and say, look, I love you. I'm here to listen to you. I'm an adult. I'm going to do what I'm going to do and maybe make mistakes, but I'm here to listen because I love you and I want you to my life. And so the, the follow-up thing, I was just thinking, like, you know, how can I help my dad, I guess, uh, understand me, I guess, or her, uh, that's um, what it is, because all he can say is he doesn't understand, and I try to ask him how to, like, how can I help you understand, and he can't really come up with anything. Joining me to help field this call, Parker Malloy. She's a writer. She's a journalist. She's also a transgender woman. You've seen her writing at Slate, at Rolling Stone, at the New York Times, at the Daily Beast, and she currently works and writes and writes and writes and writes, so prolific, so productive, uh, for Upworthy. So, Parker, thanks for joining me. Hey, Dan. It's good to be here. Uh, thanks. And we are recording this on uh, Trans Visibility Day? Yes, we are. Uh, which see, Maybe I should, we should have Skyped so I could actually see you. It's Trans Visibility Day. I can only hear you. In, in, true, in true trans fashion, I'm not even visible on my visibility day. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you're where somebody can see you, even if I can't physically see you today. But uh, thank you for coming on, uh, on the show and uh, fielding this one with me. So here's a guy, straight guy, dating a woman who happens to be trans, and they're apparently really open about it, and that's great. I think more people should be out about everything because it helps people get over their bullshit. But his dad has a problem with it, and he wants to know, how does he talk to his dad about his trans girlfriend? What should he say? Where should he direct his dad? Are there resources? Are there books? Is there a smack upside the head, some sort of ninja trans community smack upside the head that'll work on his dad? What should he do? Well, first off, I, I thought that the call was awesome. I mean, I think it's great how just nonchalantly the guy's like, yeah, so I'm dating this awesome woman, and oh, she's trans. You know, like, that's kind of how it should be. Um, which I, is great, again. I completely agree. Uh, yeah. Um, but when it comes to, you know, his, his dad not understanding, I mean, I, I get that. And I think that the, the best thing he can do is pull up, PFLAG has this document called um, Welcoming Our Trans Family and Friends. Mm-hmm. And, and while it's more geared towards, you know, how to help your family understand you being trans, a lot of the information really works for just explaining being trans in general to someone else. But I mean, overall, the experience of, you know, introducing a new 
partner to, you know, family members is stressful enough. So, <laughs> I mean, when, when you add in, oh, yeah, by the way, um, you know, the person dating is trans, like that adds just kind of another layer to an already stressful situation. So, have I mean... You, is that, have you confronted that same stressful situation in your own romantic life? You know, I, I haven't. Well, that's luck. That's lucky. Yeah. At, at what point does he just say to dad, like, look, she's my girlfriend, not yours. Fuck you. Stop it. Yeah. I mean, I do think that's that that's a strategy that a lot of uh, gays and lesbians employ with family who can't quite get over it. Like, it's not your thing to get over. Like, eat it. And I'm not going right. to talk to you about it anymore. And if you keep blowing up at me about it, I'm not going to see you anymore. He has to be willing, like, welcome, straight guy, to the sexual minority community. You have to be willing to play the same card that the rest of us have played with our families, mm-hmm. which is if you're going to be endlessly shitty to me about this, I'm not going to see you anymore. I'm not going right. to – I'm going to withdraw from you if you can't – eat this, swallow it, accept it, love me, respect me, respect my girlfriend. I'm out of here. Yeah, totally. And, you know, and, and that's definitely a card he should be willing to play at a certain point. Um, you know, if, especially if this relationship is something that, you know, they're very serious about it. It's something that looks like it's going to be kind of a longer term relationship. I mean, of course, you know, try to understand that for a while, you know, as long as his dad is trying to learn, that's good. But the question is, you know, yeah, how long is he going to do that? And the longer he does, it's going to look more and more irrational that he's still hung up on someone else's life. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one's asking the dad to date this woman, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So I, I think that, yeah, you know, if, if he can't wrap his head around it, you know, after a month or two months or, you know, something like that of really trying to help him out, you just kind of have to say, hey, dad, I, you know what? I just don't want to talk about this anymore you know this she's who i'm dating and i need you to be okay with this you know even if you don't understand that's okay you don't need to understand you know it's her it's her not you and also you know i'm i'm kind of going into this assuming that you know he had the permission of his girlfriend to out her to his dad because that's something that i just hope (laughs) I, i hope he obtained obtained that beforehand because that's kind of a polite thing to do. I agree. I agree. Um, what responsibility do cisgender partners of transgender folks have for running interference with transphobic family members? That if sure. your parents or your siblings are transphobic and you're dating somebody trans, you know, is that is that cisgender partner supposed to wall their trans partner off from that kind of grief and transphobia? What do you think their responsibility is to their trans partner in a situation like this? Sure. Um, well, I think in, in this case, it's really the responsibility is the same in any sort of relationship. I mean, if I was dating someone who was, you know, constantly under attack for something, I would say, hey, how can I help? You know, do, mm-hmm. do you want me to try to have these conversations? Do you want me to run interference? You know, and for everyone, it's a little different. Um, you know, in my case, there are times where in my life I've been just kind of overwhelmed with, um, for instance, meeting extended family right after I came out. I was lucky that I had like a really supportive brother who was willing to kind of jump in and be like, Hey, that's not cool. And correct relatives on my pronouns and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. was really helpful. But that was, you know, that was something that I said, Hey, if you don't mind, could you do this? So, you know, it, it really varies person to person, but just, you know, make yourself available. Say, ask, how can I help? What can I do? How do you want me to handle this? You know, that, that sort of stuff. So it's as important that he communicates with his girlfriend as it is that he communicates with his dad. Oh, absolutely. 
Parker Malloy. Read her at Upworthy. You've seen her stuff at Slate, Rolling Stone, New York Times, Daily Beast. Happy Trans Day of Visibility, Parker. Uh, tweet out a photo of yourself today so I can take a look at you on Trans Visibility Day. Uh, and have a great one. Thanks for jumping on the phone. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am a 23-year-old female from the Northwest. I have been thinking about calling you about my now current boyfriend for a long time. But uh, recently, uh, we just started dating. We've been kind of a pork buddy situation for a long time. And we just started making things official. And I had mentioned putting our relationship on Facebook, which neither of us are really big into social media. But I just, I'm excited and I think it's a positive thing to share. But he immediately got super defensive and said that he doesn't want to put it out there. He doesn't want people to know his business. And that if I did put it up, it would just be one update because he would hide it. This made me feel really off, like he's trying to hide me. I told him straight up that, you know, your friends know me and like me. Your family knows about me. My family knows about you. It makes me feel like you're trying to hide me from other girls, to which he really had no response. I did the bad thing, and when he was in the shower the next morning, I went to his phone and found him texting a girl, like, two days prior saying things like asking her if she had a boyfriend. Um, she answered and said something about being a heartbreaker. He said, heartbreaker, hmm, with a winky face, and then proceeded to say, Snapchat me so I can see your sexy face. I immediately came clean when he came out of the shower because I was obviously upset, and I told him, you're going to be mad at me, but I did a bad thing, and I went to your phone, and I saw this. What is this about? He tried to tell me that they're just friends. And I don't know, to me, I mean, am I crazy? I I don't think people talk to friends like that. We have a bad history. I met him when he had a girlfriend, and he, I mean, I still feel good about this, but he cheated on her with me for a year, year and a half before breaking up with her. And he used to tell me that he has cheated on every girlfriend he's had, which now, of course, he denies and says that wasn't true. I don't know what to do. Am I overreacting, underreacting? Help me out. <laughs> Congratulations. You're in an open relationship. The only question is whether you're going to stay in that open relationship. Listen to what he told you. Listen to – look at what he did with you. He cheated with you for 1.5 years on his previous girlfriend. Congratulations. You've graduated to girlfriend status and now he's cheating on you. This person who cheats, cheats. This person who cheated with you is a cheater – you don't need a mem. You don't need a telegram, right? In, in an instance like that, and I'm not from the school of once a cheater, always a cheater. I'm also not from the school of oh, you're getting your just desserts. But you do seem, you know, when it's, oh, you're, he cheated with you and now he's cheating on you. Ha ha. People will say, right? Oh, she's just getting, you know, karmic blowback. I'm not going to fault you for the fact that you were the girl he cheated with, and now you're complaining about being the girl he's cheating on. I am going to tell you that you do seem to have some unrealistic expectations. I don't believe once a cheater, always a cheater. But once a cheater, likely to remain a cheater. And you know him. And he was more honest with you when you were not his girlfriend. When he was cheating with you and told you what he wasn't telling his girlfriend at the time, which is that he cheats on every girlfriend he's had, he's ever had. 
And now you are his girlfriend and he's telling you probably the same lies he's told all of his other girlfriends, that he's not going to cheat on them, that he hasn't cheated on them. Waka, waka, waka. He's telling you what he thinks you want to hear and now the question becomes, are you going to believe him or your lying eyes? I think you should believe your lying eyes, right? Look at what he's doing. He's Snapchatting. He's texting with people. He's obviously cheating on you. If you are happy with him, if you are happy in this relationship, if he makes you happy, is that a price of admission you're willing to pay? Are you willing to go to him and say, look, I want to be your girlfriend. I love being your girlfriend. You're an awesome guy. I don't expect you to be faithful to me. Clearly, that's not something you're capable of and I'm not going to expect that of you. And then when that's no longer an expectation, you won't be disappointed. But if you require a monogamous commitment from guys that you got together with when they were violating their monogamous commitments with other people, he may not be the guy, right? He's obviously not the guy. So if you don't want to be in an open relationship, if you don't want to be cheated on, dump this guy. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the young woman in episode 440 who works as a nude model and wants to fuck her married professor. You didn't address her question at all, and it was a good one. She asked, how can she acceptably indicate to the professor that she wants to fuck him? And all you did was tell her that he'll hit on her if he's interested, which may be true, but it's not what she asked, and it actually strikes me as kind of a gendered response, and maybe he won't actually make the pass. I probably wouldn't make the pass if I were him, since I could never know if she was saying yes just to keep her income, since I'm the only professor hiring her this semester, as she said. Probably, you know, because I have the hots for her and I get off on the laser pointer as much as she does. The caller said at one point, there's not a socially acceptable way to ask the professor and his wife are monogamous. But of course there is. You say, hey, are you and your wife monogamous? It's the professor's prerogative to say that's too personal and that would indicate he's not interested. I've been poly for 20 years and I can't tell you how many times I've asked this question of someone I was interested in. This is in 1960. It's actually one of the less awkward ways to gauge interest and get on to the good stuff. Hey, Dan, this is in response to the artist model calling who wanted to fuck the professor. This is his job. I've been an artist model for eight years. This is how he makes a living. He is not inviting you to his studio to fuck. He is inviting you to his studio to work. And if you can't handle yourself in a professional manner, don't go. Get your secret thrill in the classroom from the laser pointer and leave him alone. Hey, Dan, just respond to your podcast today. Uh, I think that the term for a group of homophobic bigots clearly should be a closet of bigots. Hi, Dan. I think a circle jerk of anti-gay bigots has just the right ring to it. A festering pustule of anti-gay bigots. I'd like to suggest a diaper of bigots. A murder of crows, a pride of lions, a pack of wolves, a diarrhea of anti-gay bigots. And we're going to leave it there quickly before we go. At Buttery Pandy tweets, can you and Jeffrey Self do the Savage Lovecast together every week? You guys are super great together. Unfortunately, Jeffrey's in Los Angeles and I'm in Seattle, so we can't do the show together every week. Jeffrey has his own podcast. This is really important where you can get your weekly dose or more of Jeffrey. Uh, but the next time I'm in L.A., definitely doing the Savage Lovecast again with Jeffrey. It was a blast fielding questions with him. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Uh, 
Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Parker Molloy on Twitter at Parker Molloy. You can follow Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest on Twitter at PPGNW. And you can follow regular Planned Parenthood, National Planned Parenthood on Twitter at PPFA. And again, like I said earlier in the show, throw them a few bucks. Go online, go to Planned Parenthood, Google them, click donate. Even if you can only give them a couple of bucks or five bucks, once in a great, great while, those numbers, number of donors, help Planned Parenthood beat back the people who claim that they are not representative of Americans or where we're at or what we need around sexual health, blah, blah, blah. Throw them some money. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.